an Ironic Media production. Visit us at I-R-O-N-I-C-K media.com. All of this is related to behaviors and feelings. And this is what we see as the dementia progresses into the moderate or middle stage, right? As we see our loved ones who are having really strong behaviors, whether it's resistance to care or anger or agitation or fear or personality changes, right? We're seeing all of this in in the, the middle stage. And really what's happening is they're just experiencing unfiltered feelings. Hello and welcome to Dementia Discussions, the podcast for and about caregivers. If you'd like to share your story with me, I'd love to hear from you. Please call me and leave a message at 310-362-8232 or send me an email at DementiaDiscussions.net. My guest today is David Hart. David is a professor and also works at, well, owns, right? Co-owns? Owner of? Yeah, it's my family. It's a family company, yeah. David is a psychologist, a professor at a local university, which he'll talk about, and also does a great amount of caregiving education at his family business, a caregiving agency called Always Best Care. So David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here this morning. Thanks, Barbara. This is my first podcast. Is that right? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, great. I'm glad to be here first. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'll always remember you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Good. Well, tell us, and I've only heard great things about you. You do a lot of caregiving education. And so I've heard about you from many different people, support group members, as well as my co-facilitator, Monica Moore. And so tell us a little bit about your personal story, like what you brought you into the field of geriatrics. Sure. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I just want to say the forefront here that I have a PhD in counselor education and I'm not technically a psychologist. I actually finishing my license as a professional clinical counselor. So it's a very long story, but I've been practicing psychotherapy for about 20 years, but my hours I've been practicing in different States. So my hours have been, (laughs) haven't been, what's the word? They haven't transported very well across state lines. (laughs) Uh So anyway, I'll be officially licensed as a professional clinical counselor this summer. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah. And so I'm a professor in the Department of Counseling at Cal State Fullerton, and I train graduate students who are studying to be marriage and family therapists and licensed professional clinical counselors. And I've been doing that. I've been in that department since 2006, but been teaching in the graduate school since 2013. And so my clinical specialization is working with older adults generally, which is a population that I love. And I've been working with these folks. My first job out of graduate school was working at Presbyterian Intercommunity Hospital in Whittier. And I've been doing that ever since. But I have developed a more niche specialization in working with older adults who have some form of dementia, primarily Alzheimer's disease, and their care partners. And so going back to your question, how did I get into this field? It's probably similar to many of your guests and all the other caregivers out there, or actually professionals who are working with caregivers. My grandmother had Alzheimer's disease, and she was diagnosed when I was 15 years old. 
And so my mother and I were her primary caregivers. She was diagnosed in 1994, 1995. And so this was pre-internet days, if you can remember that far back. (laughs) Right? Pre-internet days. And we just didn't have a whole lot of information. I can tell you, and this is what I share with folks that I work with, our hearts were always in the right place. But I can say, not necessarily with guilt or regret, but with some sadness that we didn't always have the best information. And so I wish that we had folks that we could lean into, organizations that we knew about that we could lean into that could help to facilitate our decision-making, whether it related to safety was a big one and resources in the community that could help to support us. After we took the keys away, I mean, I could tell you all sorts of stories. When we finally decided that she needed assisted living, it was after a fall and she had been on the floor for about 12 hours. Oh, goodness. Yeah. And so she never quite recovered after that. She declined pretty rapidly within about a year and a half after that fall. I just remember how painful it was. And if we had preemptively intervened and knew how to manage some of her resistance and knew how to facilitate these transitions between levels of care that she required, I think it just would have been a much more, a less stressful experience Mm -hmm. for all of us. But I can say we loved her. This is one thing that caregiving has taught me about life. It really taught me, even despite the trauma of it and the the grief and the deep sense of sadness, what it taught me is the power of unconditional love. Because I, up until that point, I didn't realize that I could love that deeply and that um, profoundly, Mm -hmm. that I would be willing to really do anything to protect her and to make sure that her quality of life was a good one. And so I can say without hesitancy that we did all of those things. We maintained her dignity. We made sure that she was as safe as she could be within the parameters of Mm -hmm. the disease and her her own resistance to care. The best you could, right, with what you knew at the time. Yeah, I don't harbor any guilt or any, maybe maybe a twinge or tinge, I don't know what the word is, of regret. I know that if I knew better, I would do better. Right. And you did everything lovingly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so she's sort of been on my shoulder and everything that we do, not just the company always best care, but specifically to my work, Mm -hmm. she's been just sitting on my shoulder and, and it's a way that I've made meaning out of that experience for four or five years. I worked at an adult day healthcare center and this was mm, maybe four or five years after she passed And um, it was very, very difficult for me the first time I stepped into that facility. I just had, I was flooded with feeling and flooded with the trauma of that experience. But I knew that I needed to work through that and that if I could use what I learned, if I could apply that and gift that knowledge and wisdom to others, that somehow that would be a salve for my own feelings about it. (laughs) Absolutely. Gosh, what a beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I feel like we're in a good place, she and I. Mm -hmm. And I was just sharing with somebody, you know, my my grandmother, I feel like she was my spirit animal in a way. (laughs) (laughs) We were really close. And I hadn't realized until very recently 
you know, I was a, a gay kid. And even though I didn't have the words to describe who I was and the identity that was emerging, I, you know, I was picked on a lot and I didn't necessarily fit in, particularly in elementary school. And so my grandmother was really my best friend. She was the person that accepted me, that really couldn't care less about how I expressed my gender, how I expressed who I was as an individual. She loved it all. And so she was yeah, my unconditionally, closest person. Right? That's she loved right. You unconditionally, yes. Yeah. So That's that circles incredible. back to that, yes. that lesson of the power of unconditional love. That is wonderful. I can so relate. My grandmother was the same for me. I had a very close relationship with my grandmother. Yes, absolutely. Touching story. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, of course. So that lends itself right into what you do for caregivers, educating caregivers. And I'm sure in a way that you wish you had been educated as a caregiver with your grandmother, of course. But like you said, you bring that forward. And so, Tell us, what are some of the things that you talk about with caregivers? I know you do a lot of education on what's happening in the brain with dementia. Yeah, so I've been facilitating caregiver support groups for, oh my gosh, at least 15 years. I'm not running a support group anymore. I got a little burnt out during the pandemic, for sure. So I'm not running support groups anymore, but I had been running them for about 15 years. And then I also facilitate a monthly three and a half hour dementia coaching boot camp for family caregivers called Caregiving Essentials. And really the intention of that program, and we had conducted a needs, needs assessment over a decade ago to determine what caregivers were needing. And one of um, the findings of that survey was that caregivers were looking for educational opportunities that didn't require as much time investment. So some of the other programs, evidence-based programs like Savvy Caregiver, those are three to six weeks for two hours each session. And that, that for some caregivers, that was just a little too much, particularly the caregivers in the sandwich generation, right? That they're sort of taking care of kids and taking care of parents and oftentimes still working. So Caregiving Essentials is that three and a half hour boot camp for folks to get the information and then I really encourage them to attend a support group so they can continue to learn and bounce ideas off of one another and get connected to resources and all that. So that's what I've been doing in the realm of caregiver education. And then, of course, just sort of workshops, senior centers and churches and libraries and places out in the community. One of the things that I think lessons, pearls of wisdom I want to share with caregivers. The first one is obviously, and I don't know what your thoughts are about this, and maybe we can have a discussion. I tell my caregivers that they have two primary responsibilities. Their first responsibility is the safety of their loved one, right? And when we we think about safety, we're thinking about physical safety, financial safety, emotional safety, sexual safety, etc., and making sure that they're not neglected. And so that's the primary responsibility. And so all decision-making then can sort of center on, is my loved one safe? And how do you evaluate that? Well, if you can lay your head down on your pillow and you're not jumping up in the middle of the night thinking, oh my gosh, (laughs) what's going on over there? And that can relate to whether or not your loved one is safe driving, living at home alone, using the stove, taking a walk, I mean, whatever it happens to be. 
Yeah, on that note, I'll just chime in really quickly. I usually say, if you've had the thought that your parent probably shouldn't be driving, they shouldn't be driving. Like you (laughs) had that gut feeling for a reason Yeah, and go with it. That's probably right. Your instincts are correct. That doesn't just come out of thin air. So right. Yeah. Trust your intuition. Yes. And exactly. your the powers of observation. <laughs> yeah. So first responsibility is safety. And then second to that, and just as importantly, is your own <laughs> so safety of your loved one and your own sanity, and tending to your capacity to regulate your own emotions and to regulate your own levels of stress. And I think what gets lost in that is nowhere in that equation is your loved one's happiness. Because I think what some caregivers get stuck on, well, my loved one has to be happy all the time, even if I'm not. And and I think that's sort of an altruistic perspective. And I appreciate that, particularly spousal caregivers that are wanting their loved ones to be happy. But they forget themselves in the process. And when they forget themselves, I mean, it goes back to that, the old adage that we use, right? In working with caregivers, you got to put the oxygen mask on yourself first, and Mm -hmm. then you put it on your loved one. So I think that gets lost a lot in caregivers, every caregiver that I've ever worked with, really, and I could say this with like almost 99.9% positivity rate, right? Is that they're A plus caregivers, they're able, they're striving to have a 4.0 GPA, (laughs) right? They're doing everything like to the extra. And I, as a professor, I so respect and admire that. And yet sometimes we have to remind students, bees get degrees and bees will also. Really good point. That's right. (laughs) It's true, right? (laughs) Yes. These get degrees and it's okay that everything isn't perfect as long as your loved one is safe, right? But they're wearing the same, you know, clothes that they've been wearing for three days. It's okay, yes, right? It's okay. it's okay. And if they're not showering three times a week or twice a week and you can only get them to sponge bathe or whatever it happens to be, it's okay. You don't want to bang your head against the wall trying to get your loved one to do something that's not attached to safety, right? And so dignity and happiness and all that is fundamental, but sanity can't be lost in the process. Really good point. Because I find, and I'm sure this, when it comes to bringing in a caregiver, oh, the person showed up, my wife wasn't happy. Yeah. Oh no, we can't have that. It's so common. You're right on when you say that. Oh, we showed up at the adult daycare center. Oh no, my wife wasn't having it. Right? (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) I oftentimes use child analogy to working with people with dementia. And this is in no way uh, meant to be disrespectful or to infantilize people with dementia because they are adults and they have histories and they have stories and they have experiences and accomplishments that all are entitled to our respect and admiration. But in terms of thinking about their behavior from a psychological perspective, you know, we can often use child type analogies to help make sense of it. And so kiddos, when we take them to new places or introduce new people to them, oftentimes they have strong reactions, right? 
Yes. They're feeling unsafe or they're outside mm-hmm. of their routine or they don't have what we could would describe as a secure base, whatever the yeah, issue is. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so and they don't have the part of the brain, the rational part of the brain that makes sense of new experiences. That part of the brain is impaired. Right. So they're really operating fundamentally from a, an emotionally reactive space versus cognitively responsive. Those of us with our prefrontal cortex are intact. We take it for granted that we have capacity to be responsive because we can, in some ways, control our emotions. And patients with dementia are losing that capacity. You see that all the time. People just react with fear. That's right. With trepidation. You can't have a conversation about a new situation. They're just saying no or backing away or whatever it is or getting angry. There's no conversation like, well, I'm bringing this person in the house because I need to get out for whatever whole conversation about. I'm tired. I understand what you're saying about not being able to respond just reacting to a situation. That's one of the lessons that I teach folks who attend the Caregiving Essentials program is we talk about how the brain changes over time. And I shared with you that I use Dan Siegel's hand model of the brain, and he's a neuroscientist out at UCLA and is really probably at the forefront of integrating neuroscientific understanding of the brain into psychotherapy. So this integrated approach has been very helpful for assisting, I think, caregivers in understanding from a biological perspective what's happening in the brain. And so he uses his hand. And if you can, for those of you who are listening, you can make a fist. But as you're making the fist, just put your thumb in between your fingers and your palm. So you're squeezing your thumb tightly. Right. And so I want you to wiggle your fingers And your fingers are going to represent the top part of the brain or the part of the brain that's uniquely human. And this part of the brain is described as the prefrontal cortex. So we're going to talk about, right, what what makes us, compared to all the animal species on the planet, what makes us uniquely human, right? And it's our capacity for language, our capacity to plan, to strategize, to comprehend information, to think about thinking. So we have, we're, we have the capacity for meta perspective. This is where our personality is housed, our morality, spirituality, all of the parts that make us really special on the spectrum of animal species and at the top of the evolutionary pile. So this is the part of the brain that's affected in the early stages of Alzheimer's type dementia, right? And that's what we're noticing. In the early stages when our loved ones are diagnosed, we're noticing that, right, they're having difficulties with language, finding words, they're having difficulties with planning and strategizing and decision making and using judgment and having insight about their memory challenges and cognitive challenges, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so this is the part of the brain, the frontal temporal lobe that's affected initially and this is the this is where you start to see the symptoms emerge okay so as the disease progresses okay and also just and this is a really important point this is the part of the brain that is filtering and processing and un- making understanding emotion 
right? And so we're all feeling stuff all the time. For instance, I have a fear of heights, a really intense fear of heights. I could just like be watching a movie (laughs) and see somebody on a ledge or something and I have to look away because I have a really like visceral fear. So when I get on and I love to fly, my husband's a flight attendant and we travel quite a, quite a lot. And so when I'm getting onto a plane and I'm walking down the jet bridge, I'm thinking to myself, well, not thinking, I'm feeling to myself, oh, you better get off this plane. You better run in the other direction because this plane, it has the possibility of going down. You're not safe. Run, run. But my top brain, this human part of my brain, is actually making sense of those feelings. And it's giving me information. And that information is something like, Dave, don't be silly. This is the safest way to travel. This plane isn't going down. You're going to have fun. Have a cocktail and feel better. (laughs) So I'm able to regulate my feelings. But as the disease progresses, that capacity to regulate feelings obviously is diminished over time. So now we're moving into the mid part of the brain. And I want you to think about where your thumb is. And your thumb is the mid part of the brain and it's underneath the top part. And it's a more primitive part of the brain, but very obviously it's in terms of evolution. I mean, it's the brilliance of what it's able to do is unparalleled. But this part of the brain we describe as the midbrain or the part of the brain that makes us uniquely mammals. (laughs) So if you go all the way back to your science class in whatever grade you got this stuff, right? What makes us uniquely mammals? Well, obviously we're warm-blooded. We have live birth. We have mammary glands that lactate. But we also have mammals have five primary feelings or emotions, and those emotions are designed to enact behaviors, to to force us to to move. And if you think about emotion, let's get moving for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. And so those five primary feelings are anger, sadness, joy, fear, and disgust. And if you have pets at home, I have a dog and a cat, you likely have seen these feelings or emotions manifest. Do you know when your dog is angry? Do you know when your dog is happy? Do you know when your dog is afraid? Absolutely, right? And so these emotions sort of motivate us to take action. This is also the part of the brain that houses the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is a structure that's responsible for consolidating memories, specifically episodic memories. So those are memories that are attached to experiences and attached to people. And if you work with folks with dementia, you know that these are the memories that last the longest. These are the memories that remain in place for longer periods of time throughout the disease progression. And these memories are imbued with either really positive feelings or with traumatic feelings. Also in this part of the brain, I know this is probably dragging on here, so I'm going to wrap it up because I don't want you to get lost in the science. So also in this part of the brain is the amygdala, and it's the structure that is sort of responsible for fight, flight, or freeze response. So all of this is related to behaviors and feelings. 
And this is what we see as the dementia progresses into the the moderate or middle stage, right? As we see our loved ones who are having really strong behaviors, whether it's resistance to care or anger or agitation or fear or personality changes, right? We're seeing all of this in, in the middle stage. And really what's happening is they're just experiencing unfiltered feelings, right? Because makes sense, yes. Yes, because the part of the brain that would make sense of those feelings, regulate those feelings, is no longer functioning. So what we have then is just pure unbridled feeling. And so for us as caregivers, where we get stuck is we're trying to have communication from top brain to top brain. We're trying to have cognitive communication that requires comprehension. It requires understanding. It requires insight. But that's where we're getting in trouble because our loved one doesn't have that capacity anymore. So really what we need to facilitate is this having communication that is feeling-based from midbrain to midbrain, right? That's really tuned or attuned to not what your loved one is saying, but what your loved one is telling you, right? Not what your loved one is saying. That's the cognitive content of what they're saying, but what they're telling you through their nonverbal communication, by their tone of voice, by their cadence, by their body gestures, whether or not they're grimacing or whether or not they're smiling. I mean, we have to pay attention to the entire body for folks to know out there what percent of communication is nonverbal. It's about 85 to 90%. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the task for caregivers is to be able to shift gears and refrain from communicating in the ways that they're used to, which is to have a discussion. As the dementia progresses, we have to communicate through feelings and being attuned to those feelings and knowing what stimulates a positive experience and then avoiding what triggers a negative experience. Yeah, well said and so difficult to do. So hard after 50 years of marriage to start. I mean, we talk about this in support group all the time, how hard it is to switch, as you say, from top brain to top brain to middle brain, mid brain, middle mid brain. I mean, it's so difficult for caregivers, for anyone to really make that switch after decades of communicating in a certain way. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. And what I tell folks when I'm out in the community is that dementia care is not a perfect science. As a matter of fact, it's like a 60, 40, 70, 30 science. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to give you strategies and we're going to give you ways of thinking about how you're operating as a care partner and what you're doing. And some of the time it's going to work and some of the time it's not. The point is that you have as many tools as you can in your toolkit to help to alleviate some of the challenges that you're experiencing. And I think for a lot of caregivers, understanding how the brain is working helps them just to kind of, okay, so this isn't about my partner being obstinate or my partner wanting to cause an argument or my partner wanting to just be mean. It's that they're operating, their brain is operating from a place that that doesn't understand context. So it just is experiencing 
what are my environmental stressors and how am I going to keep myself safe? And you see that, like, I'm sure you remember from your support groups, if you've had adult children who've had difficult relationships with their parents, and they just think their mother's being the way they've always been, which maybe is not so nice in their life. And to realize no one's doing anything intentionally. And we, in groups, so many people say it's the Alzheimer's, it's the dementia. Like that's your mantra. The people who have been in groups for a long time, they'll tell people who are kind of newer to say, just in your mind, say it's the dementia. This is the dementia speaking. It's not your mother. A disease process has taken over and this is not whatever. It's not your wife. It's the dementia. Yeah. And I think again, going back to sort of a child analogy, children also don't have that top part of the brain. It's developing, right? And it doesn't fully develop until about age 25. And this is why adolescents make such poor choices oftentimes, <laughs> right? Because they're being overwhelmed. I mean, and children, we'll just not look at adolescents, but children, they're overwhelmed by that mid part of the brain that's signaling, I'm unhappy, or I'm disgusted, or I'm afraid, right? And so their bodies and their behaviors are communicating that because they don't have the language. They don't have the structure to be able to say it in any different way. So they're just acting it out. They're acting it out. And what do we do as parents or people who care for children? We don't shame them. We don't berate them. We don't blame them. We accept. We're open to them. And we attune to them. And we try to anticipate what their needs are. Right? We try to... (laughs) plan for what their needs are. Right. And give them tools. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And Mm -hmm. so we don't expect them to be obedient until a certain age or to follow specific rules and social norms until a certain age. And I think that's what is challenging for folks is that the expectation is that if I use a whiteboard and I put the schedule up (laughs) so that my loved one can see right? And they're not following through. Well, I've told you a hundred times and you're still not learning. Yeah. That's the disease, right? That's the disease. What I try to remind caregivers about is avoid using language. Like, don't you remember we already talked about that? Don't you remember we already went over that? Don't you remember? Yeah. Yeah. Because what does it do? It What it does is incites a shame-based response, like there's something wrong with me. And really what we're called to do as care partners is to accept. You know, one of the metaphors that I use in caregiver support groups is like, as your loved one is progressing, and I'm just imagining somebody on a rope and they're moving down from a cliff, but they're slowly moving down into sort of this abyss, right? And the abyss is not an abyss of death and sadness. It's just an abyss, right? You're moving into something different and unknown. And I think what I see, what I've witnessed caregivers, care partners do is they try to frantically move the rope up so that they don't lose their loved one to the abyss. And they're just pulling and pulling and pulling and come back. And so what they want is their loved one to come back into their reality, And what I've processed with care partners in the past is how about going down with them? 
being on a rope with them, meeting them where they are, and then having your team of support at top holding your rope so they can pull you back up, but mm. then they pull, they let you go back down to meet your loved one. And I'm not saying that the ropes are static, right? They're both moving and it's not just an all one size fits all. But I think the point here is we've got to go to where our loved ones are and not expect that they're going to be able to come back into our realities all the time. And I think that's a loving a way to love and to to facilitate this transition in a way that doesn't create more chaos and more stress and more sadness. It's a great image going down the rope with them, being where they're at, trying to see things from where they're seeing it. But it's hard. I mean, it's like, I love your point. And this is one way of thinking about it. And when I share with my students, I'm biased. I have my own perspectives and my own ways of thinking about things, and they're not going to be a fit for everybody. And that's okay. And it's, the point is to be in touch with folks that can give you different perspectives, alternative perspectives. You get to make your own decision. Like if you're not trying to pull your loved one back up, you're joining them. That's a much easier way. So we were just talking about this in group. The other night, this woman's husband was seeing people in their place. And instead of her saying, I'm like, honey, there's no one in our place. She just was, just went with it. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, tell me about them. It was just so much easier. And you know how that is. Like when a caregiver gets that acceptance, I mean, the accepting where their partner is at, their parent, their spouse. It's it's a, such a big aha moment in caregiving. Yeah, it is. And what it is, it's the beginning of saying goodbye, right? It's the letting go. And I don't know that anybody's ever really ready to let go. It's just, it's such a process. And so I understand wanting to hold your loved one tightly as close to you as possible. And as a matter of fact, for those of you who watch television, one of the big dramas on NBC, This Is Us, they're following a family. I've been watching it for the whole six seasons, but the matriarch of the family has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And last night's episode was really about her husband and her second husband and his process, his life, but how he was caring for her, which ultimately led to his own demise because he didn't want to let her go. And he wanted to be involved in every single facet of her care. He said something that really hit me. It's like when she opens her eyes and she sees me, that's grounding for her. And then he paused for a second and he said, when I open my eyes and see her, it's grounding for me. And it's a real, it's so touching, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's some family members and folks that just for whatever reason, are not going to let go. And letting go can be, in some ways, accepting support or accepting help or meeting, like you in your example, having that conversation about the hallucinations in the room versus, no, you're not having those hallucinations. You're normal. You're fine. Come back. Right. right. Exactly. It's so sad. Mm. It is a sad disease. But I think, well, there's no but there. It's a sad disease and 
there's something so intimate about traveling with a loved one as they're transitioning into at the end of their life, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's there's just some, it's like the, in some ways traveling with a child, right? Through the process of conception to birth to all the little steps along the way, developmental steps, but it's in the opposite direction. And there's something in in my perspective and in my own experience, there was something spiritually transformational about that has allowed me to live my life in a more meaningful way and also to help others process this part, this part of life in a way that makes sense for them. You have really taken the experience you've had with your grandmother and probably in your work to be now more intentional in life, kind of seizing the day. Oh my gosh. All my older adults, every older adult client that I've ever worked with has taught me the lesson of live every moment like it's your last because you never know. Live it to the fullest. Have as much fun as you can. Be connected to as many people as you can. Don't let your fear and your ego get in the way of experiencing as much as you can. Good. These are good lessons I've, in life. For sure. I've been blessed to to have all of these angels help guide me along my life. Mm-hmm. Me too. I think the same. I feel exactly the same way. I feel so grateful to be working with what I call living history. Mm-hmm. So, I like that. Yeah. It's so great to hear people's stories. Yeah. Just to learn what they've gone through in life. So I agree with you. It helps us day to day, just savor the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Live to the fullest. I know you give lots of tips to caregivers. Maybe share some of those tips with us here today. Yeah. I mean, I really encourage family members to develop what we call memory care tools. And and I was part of a study several years ago at Hoke Hospital that wanted to reduce the use of physical and pharmacological restraints of dementia patients on several floors of the hospital. And we wanted to use some behavioral strategies that we would use in the adult day healthcare center. So we taught the nurses a basic, very simple redirection strategy, and then gave them four tools to use with that redirection. So we used a teddy bear, folding cloths, stress balls, and music. And we taught the nurses to use this strategy. And what we encourage them to do is first to validate the patient's feelings. So let's just use a quick example. Mrs. Jones is in the hospital with a fractured hip. Her husband is recently deceased within the last four to six months. Obviously, she can't get out of bed because she can't really walk, but she's really wanting, she's agitated, wanting to get up to find her husband. So nurse comes in and first thing we want the nurse to do is validate. So the validation might be, and this is really important for families that have been taught redirection strategies in the past. You're missing, generally missing these first two steps. So the first step is to validate. Mrs. Jones, you look you look worried. Mrs. Jones, it looks like you're having a bad day. Mrs. Jones, it looks like you really want to get out of bed right now. <laughs> right? So that's the validation part. 
stating the obvious, but but you're connecting, right? That's that midbrain reflection. It's really getting to the core of what, that's the attunement piece, right? We're attuned to what you're feeling and what you're trying to do. So that's the first step. Second step then would be to join her. Now, this is where families get mixed up, right? So Mrs. Jones, it looks like you're wanting to get out of bed, right? And so she's stating that she wants to find her husband. So what the nurse might say is, Mrs. Jones, you're looking for your husband. I'm looking for him too. So now we've validated the feeling or the experience and joined her in her endeavor. Now, what some families might do or what some nurses might do is, you know, state the the obvious, which is Mrs. Jones, your husband's no longer with us. Now you can imagine that likely would increase her agitation. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we've validated and joined, then we can use one of the tools to redirect. So let's imagine that we use a teddy bear, which is for children, a transitional object. It's it, it represents, it's symbolic of primary caregiver. And as a matter of fact, teaching live, I'll pass the teddy bear around and I'll ask attendees to squeeze the teddy bear and, and then ask them to you know reflect on how they feel. And of course, they're feeling a sense of peace and security and calmness because their brain, they're feeling a shot of serotonin and dopamine, right? That's going to help them to calm down. So then we use that tool. So Mrs. Jones, I'm going to be looking for your husband. In the meantime, I've got this really sweet guy named Teddy, right? Now touch him. I want you to squeeze him. He needs a safe place to rest while I go, right? So we're hoping that the teddy bear is going to stimulate that serotonin release and calm down. So that's the distraction. That's the distractive tool. And then we can redirect to another activity. Hopefully she's forgetting what she, who she's looking for. So we can use folding towels, right? This is like idle hands or the devil's playground. We want to give our loved ones activities. We want to keep them engaged in a way that they can be successful. And that distracts them from confusion. Because that's really what we're trying to, to minimize. The most effective way, by the way, to manage confusion is routine. That's just a the basic foundational understanding for working with people with dementia. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. So creating a structure to the day. Yes, yeah, creating absolutely. structure. Mm-hmm. The folding towels are helpful stress balls, particularly when you're changing a diaper or you need to you know, create some kind of distraction. Stress balls can be helpful. And then, of course, music, but any other sensory type of stimulation, right? It could be pets, it could be aromatherapy, it could be music, it could be a weighted blanket, it could be a squishing Play-Doh or some kind of other putty. It's just the opportunity. And this is very much like children. Babies are constantly moving and they're looking to stimulate themselves. And so we want to give our loved ones that opportunity and that structure to engage in that way. So, so essentially what like put something in someone's hands, put, yes, yes. Put a stuffed animal in their hands while you're changing their diaper or while you're, you're trying to wash them down. Change. Change yeah. Like them. let's and, imagine and, that you're trying to put on uh, your husband's pants, mm-hmm. right? Give them a stress ball a squeeze, give them mm-hmm. something to engage that energy. But this is really important. So we were able to reduce the, the physical and pharmacological restraints by 60%. Yeah. 
So this, these strategies work, right? But obviously, depending on where your loved one is in the progression of the disease, the tools are going to look different and they really need to be tailored to your loved one's interests. So it could be like tennis, like I'm thinking of a patient that I worked with that her memory care toolkit, she was a traveler. So we had artifacts from her travel days. We had tennis racket, tennis ball, because she was a tennis player. We had some of the awards like that she won from her half marathons and marathons. We had some business artifacts from she owned her own business that we would pull up for her to reminisce about. And then we had lots of sensory activities for her. She loved fuzzy, furry, anything that she could like squeeze or manipulate with her hands. Weighted blanket for her was so soothing. We had her favorite scents all over the house, which was jasmine and what was the other one? Jasmine and ginger. So it's thinking about how we're engaging these folks, but all in a way to soothe, right? Because we don't have that top brain to rationalize and understand what's happening. We're trying to soothe and create positive experiences and soothe those feelings that are unfiltered. So you're saying to create, like everyone has their individual toolbox. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great idea. It has to be, it has to be tailored for sure. And it's really about asking questions and knowing your loved one. And, and also remembering too, that these tools don't work all of the time, but they can be very helpful in a pinch. So there are two things you want to have a script, like what are we talking about when dad gets agitated or gets confused, what's going to help get him redirected. And I'm actually working with a wife right now that her husband is wanting to go home all the time. He believes that they have a third home and that that home is where they're supposed to be living. And it's not his childhood home and it's not anywhere that they've ever been, but he's positive that it exists. And she's tried every tool under the sun to redirect him and none of the tools are working and she's beyond frustrated. But just the other day, I encouraged her to, he's a former business owner, entrepreneur, very handy in the home. I said, I want you to come up with a problem in the house that he can help you fix. And that's the tool I want you to use. And sure enough, now every time he wants to go to this house and he's packing his luggage and putting his boxes together (laughs) to move out, Mm -hmm. she comes up with a problem in the house that she needs his help with. So, okay, we'll go home. So she's going to validate, right? I know you want to go to the other house. Then she's going to join. We'll get you to the other house (laughs) in a few minutes. In the meantime, now she's going to distract. I need you to help me with the leaky sink. And then Mm -hmm. she's going to redirect into another behavior. Let's go grocery shopping or let's have lunch or whatever it's going to be. If she was using memory care tools, it might be if he's further progressed, they wouldn't work now. He would need to be progressed down the stages of the disease, but she might have handyman objects in there, mm-hmm, right? right? Yeah. Handyman tools, maybe a calculator, for instance. Some rags or something. Yeah, like yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. So it works, right? But sometimes it takes a while. And then the more tools you have, the more options you have. I like that. So acknowledge, say them again. So it's validate. Validate, join. Distract. Distract redirect redirect we usually go just to distraction that's right 
That's right. And this, the validate and join is the, the attunement part. Mm-hmm. That's the, the emotional communication. And that's the part that we're missing. And that's the part that's going to increase your success. That makes perfect sense because we all strive to be understood, right? To be heard and understood. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, yes. Just like a child, mm-hmm. just like a child, when they're crying, when they're attempting to achieve their objective, they're not going to calm down if you don't validate them or attune to their need. I know it sounds really simple, but these are the parts I think that families are missing is the the emotional attunement piece. Right. And hopefully that hand model of the brain tool, understanding that the communication that we're having is not content-based, it's feeling-based. And there's a reason why, because the content part of the brain is no longer operating efficiently. Yeah, so useful, so helpful. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on today. I so appreciate you and your wisdom, your knowledge, your ability to articulate these concepts in in a way that we can all understand. So I I hope so. Thank you. And I hope that you'll come back. Absolutely. Yeah. People are always looking for tools, ways to fill their toolbox. So we're always open to caregiver tools. So yeah, thank there you are lots that. out there and I'm happy to come back anytime. That would be great. Thank you for joining us today on another episode of Dementia Discussions. If you're a caregiver or know someone who's a caregiver that would like to be a guest on the show, please call me at 310 362 82 or go to DementiaDiscussions.net forward slash contact and let me know. I would love to have you. Remember that you can follow Dementia Discussions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot if you would leave me a review. For any other information about this podcast, please visit me at DementiaDiscussions.net. And please share this podcast with someone you know, if you think it may help. Thanks again for listening. And I'll see you here again next time on Dementia Discussions.